Welcome to the EBFC Show, easier, better, for construction podcast. My name is Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction and how our guests are making it easier, better, faster, and cheaper. Hey, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Felipe. You're not recording yet, are you? Oh, yeah, man. It's all good. There's nothing like having you walk on to the show. <laughs> Extra effect. I love it. That's exactly what I was shooting for. Obviously, huh. I'm experienced at keeping an audience in suspense. They were like, is he going to come on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Easier Better for Construction show. We talk about all things business for construction. My guest today is Josh, and he's going to get to introduce himself in just a second. Josh, you'll get to introduce yourself in a second. I won't even try. I leave to the experts and no one knows you better than you. So you're working in a space. You've worked in the construction industry before. We've worked together before, uh, different companies, different organizations. But I definitely count you among those making what we do easier and better for many. So my background education and practice over the last 10 years is in the construction management space. It's where my undergrad and graduate studies are in. Um, and I was exposed to lean at a contractor that I worked with prior to going back for my graduate studies, but it heavily influenced the focus of my work. And I saw firsthand how important people were in the process so you could design a great process but if it looked at the human element as the weak point instead of the opportunity it almost inevitably failed so my yeah. uh, graduate studies looked at the impact of emotional intelligence on project performance uh, team emotional intelligence to be specific and then i spent three years with another contractor helping to both design some lean processes, bring some of what I'd learned from the other contractor, and then train that as well. The last couple of years, I took a hard left turn and I somehow wandered into the data science space. So I spend most of my time rummaging through large stacks of numbers and programming, building predictive models and dashboards to help people pick up on that signal and tell the story that is embedded in their data, but can sometimes be a little hard to pull out. Yeah, what a great, uh, great story you've got there. And you glossed over some of the interesting parts too, like, uh, only because I know you so well, I know some of the, the deeper parts of this, and maybe it'll come up in our conversation, and maybe you'll just leave us in suspense. <laughs> but I was actually talking to somebody this week, Josh, that uh, that worked with your you're one of your past mentors, Ken, uh, at the Simplar Institute. Yeah, and they uh, they they said it, and it had been in the spirit of continuous improvement is how they work together. And I just said, I can't believe how small of a world it is that I'm talking to somebody in Minnesota that knows, you know, Ken, and that I've actually met Ken, and I'm, I'm going to talk to somebody tomorrow that used to work with Ken quite closely. I was like, what a small world, such a small world. You definitely see Ken's fingerprints on a lot of my thinking and the way I, I process things. You're like, hey, there's a lot of overlap there, and it's for good reason. He was very influential. And the Ken we're talking about is Ken Sullivan, right? You know, just checking check my memory. It's like we're sitting side by side. Uh, even better. Yeah, and I'm in beautiful California today, and where are you today? I'm in overcast Seattle. <laughs> nice. I can't tell by all the, the light on you. It looks it looks quite bright. So it's even with the overcast, you've got some natural light hitting you. Well, I'm right next to my sliding glass door, and the overcast kind of makes it like one of those uh, movie style reflectors. Yeah. And then my makeup artist is obviously off screen. <laughs> obviously. <that one>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I almost combed my hair today. So. <laughs> No worries. Yeah, so we were, we're we want to talk about, uh, you know, the construction industry and, and one of the things that you'd mentioned, and we had like such a good conversation, you know, that wasn't captured. So we're going to have to recreate some of that here. 
about uh, systems thinking as applied to to people that work in the construction business. And I think that's where that's one of the cool things that you and I have in common is this passion for thinking about things systemically. It's not uh, it's not normal to think about that way. Uh, it's definitely something that I've acquired over time with with some good study, but it's it's influenced the way that I see the world, Josh. And I can say, you know, for me, my systems thinking study has made me more patient, you know, because I'm always trying to figure out like, what are, you know, what are the the feedback loops or what are the inputs to what I'm seeing? What am I observing? You know, how deep does this go? Whenever I'm working with teams or, or, or departments or different businesses, those are interesting things to uncover. It's not always obvious. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this was because I noticed that when I came at it from an economic perspective, yeah. it just kept it at a very system-focused uh, piece instead of looking at the people and being like, why can't you just behave the way we want you to? <laughs> What's well, like, uh, I think it was like Matthew McConaughey said in some quote, People are going to do what they're going to do. <laughs> all I can do is all I can do. You got it. <laughs> and it's, a, it's like such a simple phrase, but it really nails what we're talking about. I agree. Digging into it is uh, some of the real fun. For me, what really uh, helped to detach me from um, the like being too engaged, too in the weeds with it was taking that systems thinking that we share. And then when you're not getting the behavior from the people in the system, instead of wondering like, why aren't they behaving the way I want? Um, applying more of uh, an economic perspective in mm -hmm. the sense of incentives and um, optimization to understand, okay, well, um, if we're rational operators, and well, behavioral economics sheds some light on the um, overly reduced perspective that traditional economics holds. Um, there's definitely still some value added and the models still work in a number of areas in traditional economics where we're rational operators who are looking to optimize our outcomes given the situation. And I think that's the most important piece for me. It would almost by definition be irrational for a human being not to optimize their outcomes for the given situation they're in. And very often we're not responsible for the incentives that are designed in a system. We are dropped into a system and told here's how it operates and as rational operators, it's our idea to explore the space and eventually figure out, oh, here's how I optimize my output. To do anything less would actually be irrational on their part. And when I thought about it like that, I'm like, oh, okay. Um, are they doing what, what would be desired from a systems perspective? No, but that's not a reflection on them. That's a reflection on the system. So even if the system is right, maybe the incentives, and I do, for the most part, when I say incentives during this conversation, it'll be in the economic sense, not sure. necessarily in the capital sense. Um, the incentives might not be designed well, and there might were still be some perverse incentives where this is, the outcome is completely predictable given the the appearance of these perverse incentives within the system or the presence of them. And that's, that's the funny part. So I want to unpack a couple of things you said at first. I like, you got my attention when you said perverse incentives because it, I mean, you've got uh, some perspective in there. So when you see people acting in a way that optimizes for themselves and some like on a, on a construction project, if we're talking about like a crew, and, uh, you know, since one day, a long time ago, I studied to be an electrical engineer. Let me pretend like I'm, on a, I'm an electrician and I'm on an electrical crew. So I might be working uh, with a handful of other people and we might be installing, say, raceway for lights, right? So 
we we might have as an organization have some production goals that our company wants us to hit. So I might have to, if we're sophisticated enough, our company might say, you know, in this commercial office building, you should be installing. And I'm sure I have all the estimators roll their eyes and no matter what number I say, uh, I should be installing like 10 light fixtures a day in a commercial office building. Right? I'm just throwing out round numbers, right? So, so the incentive for me is that I'm going to do well. I'm going to meet the goal that my company has set. And there's going to be a lot of secondary and, and tertiary things that we do to make sure that I actually achieve the 10 per day, right? That means someone has to have procured the material. It has to be on site. I need to know where it is. I need to have some contract drawings to tell me what fixture goes where and what room, right? There might be a sequence. If there's a general contractor involved, there's inevitably a critical path method schedule that says I should go clockwise, counterclockwise, odd rooms first, you know, checkerboard, some kind of logic to where I should go. So, and, and those, uh, those are different organizations, like even just having a general contractor involved, you know, versus if I was just hired directly by a, an owner doing a tenant improvement, completely different incentives for what I should do. But if I'm on time and material, <clears throat> for example, to bring the economic piece back into our example, if I'm working on time and material, I'm going to get paid for the materials I install and my labor hours, right? At some set fixed fee that my company cares about, but me as the electrician, I'm getting paid by the hour, almost no matter what, right? And I got to hit this goal just so that I stay part of this crew, part of this team, and I can keep working every day because if something catastrophic happens and I miss the mark by like half and I don't have a good story to tell as to why, I'm probably not going to get asked back right now with that with those types of incentives that we've just described I'm, I'm getting a paycheck i've got the camaraderie of working with my crew right there's a intangible there of being part of a team right we probably all wear the same you know types of vests logos i might even have like the company logo on the side of the truck i drive potentially all nice things they might even pay for my gas that's another nice economic incentive i'm working far from home potentially now with all of those things in play, the perverse incentives, what would you consider to be a perverse incentive in that scenario? Yes. I know you can think of some, Josh, because we want to give, let's give people some type of, where's the dark side of our thinking? Yeah, we'll uh, explore this a little bit more. And then there's one other example that I'd like to get to at some point, because it's interesting in that, um, a person's in the person stays constant and their incentives change. And um, the person I was having this conversation with explained how their behavior changed. And there was initially an opportunity to say like, Oh, you know, this person just gaming the system one way or the other. And it's like, yeah. wait a second. And in fact, no, they're, they're doing exactly what economics would predict at each step of the way. They, optimized for their incentives and when their incentive structure changed they did the rational thing so you there's no negative judgment there but in terms of um what we're exploring right now especially in that time and material one you hit uh, an interesting one that as a uh, quantitative nerd always um makes me a little squeamish when you like you said a good story yeah. and um, that right there, whether or not that story is accepted or rejected by itself, you're starting to create incentives, either beneficial or perverse at each small step. Um, I think this is very important. No system is ever designed intentionally placing perverse incentives in there. And most systems are not static, especially anything that involves sure. humans. They're dynamic and they don't take gigantic leaps from one state to another. Instead, it's small, almost imperceptible ones where you bring your head up one day and you're like, how the hell did we get here? Yeah. Um, a story is a good example. And this is tough. Um, well, I'm thinking of that, that example we were talking about. So like, if I'm, if I'm incentivized by my company to hit my goal of 10 per day, I might act in such a way that I'm good for my system, my electrical company, I hit my numbers, but I'm, I totally mess up 
what the GC needs and I might get ahead and start burying people, right? I might start putting fixtures in the way of other trades like fire sprinkler or, I mean, that's really super common. So like, I can't, you know, it's like, what things do lights typically get in the way with? And, you know, in the 20 years that I've been building, fire sprinklers always, um, heating, ventilation, air conditioning things, either piping systems or ductwork can happen because the, even the way that things are designed in the system of construction, like the drawings typically are compartmentalized. Electrical drawings will show light fixtures. Reflected ceiling plans will sometimes show them, but on the other trades, they might not even be a half, half tone. They might not even exist. It might just show like routing, right? And, and totally ignore, you know, where the lights, should it be centered? Should it not be? Right. Is there a speaker in the room? Where's the speaker go if there's a light in the way? Who gets precedent? Here's a really insidious one that comes from this very example here. So if you're on a large enough project, which we both worked on large projects, you have a number of different crews for each trade. So the examples you gave are an example of one trade potentially uh, creating what would be considered um, an externality mm. in that it impacted another person that wasn't part of that transaction. Yeah. If you're the GC and I'm the subcontractor, the agreement of 10 lights per day, that is an agreement between you and I. Sure. And in the process of that agreement, if I get ahead or I'm like, hey, you know what, I'm just gonna install here today, and that impacts the, the fire sprinkler subcontractor in such a way where they then can't do the work. They weren't even part of them. So that creates what's considered an externality. People assuming that there was a mutual exchange of benefit. Um, you're hiring me to install lights. I, as such, I take your money, install the lights. We both come away feeling that we benefited from it, but someone else pays the cost of it. Yeah. You have that, but the real insidious one, and this is interesting, it's sometimes a little bit harder to tease apart if you haven't seen it. On large projects where you have numerous teams within the same subcontractor, I have even seen where um, in order for team A to install their 10 fixtures, they'll take resources from team B. So that way they can say, Hey, I hit it. So overall, the subcontractor we're referencing here, someone still has to give a story for why work was not completed yeah. to the general contractor. But now you even have factions within that, that subcontractor. We're not even talking about externalities with other subs anymore. Sure. Yeah. We're just staying in the same, the same company logo. Exactly. And it's still, it's never, at least in my experience, I have never seen it firsthand where someone's maliciously like, you know, oh, I'm absolutely going to screw so-and-so over. Never seen that. I've seen general contractors pit trades against each other. Uh, that was way early in my career, but uh, it's it left a mark on me. Like, I remember that. Installing work where people might not have been ready. Just because the schedule said it was ready, whether it was or it wasn't, right? Yeah. To get people to be pushed and start moving forward faster. That's a push mechanism. That's I would I would classify as insidious. Absolutely. Intentional insidious. And and there's a lot of jokes, Josh. I mean, I've I've gone to conferences and and spoken in a few places and I've heard general contractors say things like, I'm a recovering general contractor, and like the trade people laugh because they know sometimes, you know, it's tough. And uh, I, I've spent more of my career on the general contractor side. So, you know, I've seen it both ways. I've worked on the subcontractor side and I've also worked on the owner side. And there's a saying that one of my professors during school would often say, and I'm, I'm quite fond of repeating, and it's the golden rule. <laughs> he who has a gold yeah. makes the rules. Yes. And I saw this firsthand really when I was working on the 
owner representative side where you're like, you can, the downstream impacts of these decisions are beyond predictable. So you don't even get to feign ignorance. Yeah. They're the ones writing the check. Exactly. The owner wants to see progress, right? We've all, we've all been on a job where, where someone says something like, you know, the owner needs to see this happening, right? This thing, right? The owner might have a lot of experience and, uh, and they understand certain systems better than others. And they want to see like, you know, we hear things like, we want to see all the walls turn white with primer, right? Phrases like that. Or we want to see the, you know, the, the, the mass excavation start. We want to see the, the big trucks roll, right? So these are all things that, that they say because people understand those parts and they latch onto that. And it looks like progress, even though it might be the worst possible thing for the, the overall project as, as a whole system, right? Because the, the, the point of most construction projects is that you're creating something that an owner will use to solve a business problem themselves and generate revenue. If it's a healthcare client, it's to treat patients. If it's a school, it's to teach, you know, students, if it's a cultural center, it's to have people come together and, you know, like in a museum or art, you know, all these different buildings. If it's a road, it's so that people can go from point A to point B, literally, you know, and a tollway so they can generate revenue as they go from point A to point B, right. It kind of pays for itself. Even though I've never seen a toll stop collecting money. But I'm not sure how that that's just, that's another conversation. You're right. I mean, things are meant to, it's kind of the equivalent of to stick with the uh, being transported from point A to point B. We see the car going down the street. And most people don't understand how it works. It's like, oh yeah, I know there's an engine and transmission and wheels. And it's like, okay, well, what does the engine do? And it's like, you know, oh, it produces power, internal combustion. It's like, how does that work? Yeah. You can see we, we live in a complex environment that most of the time serves us very, very well. But any one thing you recognize there's an appreciable amount of things going on where um, if we try to just get the, um, the 140 characters of it, well, yeah. we, uh, we say something, but if we're, it may not necessarily be communicating anything. Well, even yeah. think about in our in our system example, our poor little electrician trying to get ten fixtures a day, and they send end up burying the the fire sprinkler guy, or the our same little story where the electrician's got to hit their mark, and they steal from or borrow from another crew, you know, to their detriment, and they don't, might not even realize that it's to their detriment because maybe one foreman's more sophisticated than the other one, or has more clout on on the staff with their general superintendent than the other one so they get preferential treatment because that happens there's human dynamic and relationship component part but from from different people's perspective josh it doesn't look perverse you know it looks it looks right and it feels right and the people that are making the 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 changes and affecting the outcomes they're acting rationally but yeah. from a, from a step back perspective, like, you know, as you know, me, I get I have this unique perspective when I work with project teams, I get to come in completely detached, completely detached. So I'm seeing things. I, I think I'm seeing things closer to as they are, but I'm still super biased, right? I've got a lot of bias, but I'm seeing things close to how they are. And it, it looks very different to me. And I can tell it's very different because of the way that the questions that I ask and how people react to my questions, I can tell that, that my perspective is very different than people working inside the system versus someone outside looking in. It looks different. And I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like you said too, they're not designed to be bad, right? They're not designed to, to run people over or to get people hurt, but that can be an outcome and it can be very predictable. Yeah, I think you, you brought up an interesting point there that's really worth uh, exploring a little bit further in that the agent operating within the system, it is not for them to say, this is a perverse incentive. It yeah. is only for them to understand the constraints and incentives, um, both positive and negative of the system they're operating in and optimize accordingly. Um, 
At minimum, it's the responsibility of leadership, typically the ones who create the systems. It's their job to assess, is this a perverse incentive? Is this creating unintended externalities or, hey, we solved the first order consequence. Maybe that's being able to deliver the necessary production report on Friday, but it had these second and third order consequences where in the programmatic and data science space, it's called technical debt. And it's amazing the overlap between these two spaces. It's funny. Uh, in the data science space or computer science, people hate when I'm like, oh, it's, this actually shares a lot in common with construction because you're like, what we do is really, really smart. And it's like, <laughs> he goes down a minute. We're still talking about bringing a diverse group of people together who all have different competing interests and incentives, and we're trying to deliver a product. Does that yeah. sound pretty applicable to construction? Sounds just like construction. And that technical debt, I mean, even in my scrum practice and, and learning, that's talked about in software development all the time. Yep, that's a huge piece of it. And it's like, it's something that, uh, you know, no project manager wants to tell you what it is. For this given effort to make this program, this much is going to be debt, right? They call, I mean, they call it, uh, re, I think they call it refractoring. What's yep. That? Yeah, refactoring, refactoring, right? or basically just cleaning up code. Which is extremely important because not cleaning it up, that is actually the technical debt. Yeah. Um, a good example of that is, and this is another thing that kind of maps to construction reasonably well, as you write different pieces of code that are meant to be reused, if you're doing it properly, you provide sound documentation. So I find code to actually be something of a misnomer because when people hear code, it's almost like the idea of my code is for you not to be able to interpret it. And that's the furthest from the truth. Good code is code that you can pick up and be like, I understand what Josh is saying here. Okay, this is how I would use it. Got it, this makes sense. So it's more, um, I like to call it instructioning when I'm teaching people because you're really just telling the computer how to behave. That's it. Sure. Um, but as it applies to technical debt, if I don't write that just for the sake of getting it out quickly, let's face it, none of us ever factor into our plans or our schedules, oh, go back and do that thing we should have done the first time around. <laughs> yeah, so, even I don't, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. as a result, if I rush real quick and I don't refactor, the refactoring is not even um, necessarily taking on technical debt. It's just more good housekeeping. It's kind of cleaning up your toolbox afterwards. Yeah. If I don't do that, the next time I go in, I'm like, where the hell is that tool? Where is that instruction manual that tells me how to install this? And those are some of those second order consequences that often get overlooked because the incentives of this system, they reward that behavior. Yeah. They reward to just get it done. Yep. Even the, you know, a lot of leaders talk about having a bias to action and they want to incentivize their people to a bias to action, but there's a limit to that because you can end up having a lot of people just cowboying stuff and getting things done. And, and then they're like, look at me, I'm biased to action. Look at all these things that I'm doing. And right. And they never go back and, and do those other parts. Like as you're talking about the technical debt and the refactoring, I was thinking like in, in lean terminology, that's like a five S or a can do where you're, you know, you're systematically daily throughout the day, cleaning things up, making it ready for the next day. Right. Or just keeping it tidy for the next day. Right. And when we look at our, when our estimates, like, doesn't matter what trade you are, you don't see anything calling out like general cleanup, unless you're doing general conditions for a general contractor. <laughs> you know, there's, and there's never enough money in it, Josh, <laughs> yeah. no matter what. And it's like, it's always underfunded. And people always think like every trade will just do it, but it's not called out. It's mm -hmm. not because that's not what we get rewarded for. We get rewarded for putting work in place. Even the way that owners pay us, they pay us based on progress. 
we can have progress and, and the, the job site can be a pigsty. If the work's installed, you still get paid. You don't get demerits for having it messy. This was something that, that I, Ken and Dean Kashawagi, they teach in, in their methodology because all of the systems approaches that you see uh, Ken and Dean teach uh, or uh, apply respectively, there's underlying human psychology acting as a foundation there. These are not just nerds that sit around and build beautiful you know, flow charts yeah. and diagrams. They understand the human element in there and they just try to put alignment points in there to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing and they recognize do that early and it has a bigger impact. Um, at the beginning of projects, it's interesting. I can't tell you how many times I was told I'm a pessimistic person because at the beginning of a project when it's just like dating at the very beginning, you're like, man, this person's awesome, man. My, my new girlfriend is great. And then one of my buddies is like, hey, man, I don't know if you guys are a good fit. And I'm like, dude, don't be a jerk. Man, what do you got to be raining on my parade for? You don't want me to be happy? Yeah. New projects are kind of the same way. You're in that honeymoon phase. And the most effective relationships that I've ever seen, even in the honeymoon phase, people go into them very deliberately. Like some of my friends, they've gone through marriage counseling with their fiancés because they're like, hey, we should just get ahead of this stuff. So some might say like, oh, that's being pessimistic. You know, oh, that's bad luck. You know, you're yeah. setting yourself up for failure. But instead they're like, hey, we're going to get the skeletons out of the closet now and at least figure out, oh, okay, well, now that you know I'm not perfect and I know that you're not perfect, are we signing up for a set of complications that we're both in agreement with? So it reduces yeah. surprises and you can even have countermeasures in place for when challenges inevitably arise. That's a very pragmatic approach to things that many just, that doesn't release the same amounts of dopamine, oxytocin, and serotonin saying like, hey, let's practically talk about the hardship. It's totally different. <laughs> yeah. The other it is, piece, it is totally different. Yeah, the other piece that you hit on there was um, the bias towards the action. And that to me is a beautiful space to really explore the human psychology piece as well as the economic incentives of it. And it's something that I think is unbelievably important. Um, I can't remember where I read this. It was many, many years ago, but um, again, this is speaking generally, but when you talk large populations, it's about all you can do. Um, Western culture seems to um, have a desire for absolutes. We love binaries. Like, just tell me what the damn rule is. Yeah. Whereas Eastern cultures tend to take a more nuanced and contextual approach. They're like, if this, tell me what that. They, they look at things more in a conditional sense. And I think that bias towards action is a great one. And one of, uh, one of my favorite thought leaders, Jocko Willink, I'm sure he's familiar to many oh, yeah. people in your audience. So he says something very different or very similar to his teams that he trained default aggressive. That's right. All right. That is always the default, but even Jocko recognized, he's like, if I'm always telling them to be default aggressive, that means at times my troops that I'm responsible for are going to rush into a dangerous situation where had they detached and evaluated for a moment, they would have actually been able to take a more effective and safer approach. So he still advocates, yes, you want to be default aggressive in that you're always looking for that opportunity to flank. You're always looking for that opportunity to advance. But that doesn't mean you're turning off the prefrontal cortex and operating from the limbic brain. Instead, default aggressive just means, okay, my first thought is go, go after it. But let's stop for a second and see what second and third order consequences might this create. So that's your default. But he's not saying don't think. He's just saying when you're thinking, you start out 
get after it, and then evaluate why that might be a bad idea. Well, you can't even mention Jocko and not use the word dichotomy at least once. <laughs> oh, I don't know how long the podcast goes. I figured we'd have plenty of opportunity. Because yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, no, I, I watch his podcast too, and for a long time, and I've read all his books, and I'm a big fan of his, and and that dichotomy of like default aggressive, but like you said, still got to think. Mm-hmm. And getting people to think and make decisions, like what's the next decision I'm going to make? If we do this, what's the next decision? And just putting that little if. And he says, you just start making these little moves and the next thing you know, you survived. And, and I think some of it, when you mentioned it, you talked about that like concept wise, if this, then show me what this will be. You know, the Eastern thinking, some of it's language based. Like the English language is very like the that, the that, the that, very like one thing leading to another, black and white. The words, the meaning to the words are, you know, we can get to a common ground very fast, like on off binary, like you said. Whereas in some of the other uh, Eastern traditions, I've, I've read some things that have been translated in English and the footnotes on the translations are just insane. Like you can read for days you try to read like a paragraph and then you're reading like three paragraphs of footnotes to explain all the nuanced subtleties. And there's just, it seems to have a way more broader meaning. Yeah. That's just so that's, it's very different. I've read two translations of the Tao Te Ching and it's <laughs> interesting because you're like, hold on. Am I reading a translation of the same book here? Right. It almost reads like two separate books. It, it, you nailed it. Meditations by Marcus Aurelius is another example of that. Where the translation matters greatly. Yeah. Um, so I was chatting with a friend of mine who works at another contractor. And he was talking about the change in behavior that he saw from an individual when they went from union to ESOP. And he's like, you know, when this person was union and... Um, they were paid hourly. This person worked massive hours. 60 hours a week was like, hey, sign me up. That's awesome. Yeah. And you'd easily see 70, 80 hour work weeks. And the friend that I was chatting with, he said, once this person went to ESOP, you rarely see them doing more than 40, 50 hours a week. And, and ESOP, for those that don't know, employee stock ownership program. And I'm assuming your friend went salary. Yes. Right. So salary, no longer hourly, no more overtime, salary and employee stock. That's correct. All right. Yeah. So that's a change. There was, there was nothing explicitly stated saying like, you know, oh man, this, not so much accused of being lazy, but it's like, oh, now that he's not making a bunch of money, he's not, you know, raking in the overtime. So almost more speaking negatively about the excessive hours uh, while being paid hourly. But in this specific space, I did hear just kind of the tone a little bit. It was just something in the tone uh, implied some frustration with, uh, man, this person, just the way you know they're behaving or were behaving, like, it just goes to show they're just looking to take advantage of the system. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing because I've heard that. Okay. I know this person. So it gives me the benefit of suspending judgment for just a moment being like, okay, I don't always agree with their behavior, but I know they're not a bad human being. They're not a malicious actor. So let's look at what's going on here. Well, when they were financially incentivized to work as many hours as they did, that's what they did. And then when their incentives changed, again, based on this person had been pushed to go ESOP for a while, and he'd put it off for a while. So it was still the system trying to nudge him in that direction. And then once his system, uh, the environment changed, you saw the behavior change. And I'm like, this is a perfect example of perverse incentives. There wasn't incentivization on the specific outcomes that were desired or the specific inputs to go from uh, measure what matters and 
objectives and key results. Because you really want to look at what are the key results that kind of feed into them to reach the objective. Do not incentivize on the objective. You can't increase profit by staring at profit. You can yeah. only increase profit <laughs> by impacting the inputs That's right. into the system where profit is the output. Um, and when I looked at that, I, I saw, I'm like, oh, okay, this explains it. And then my friend started sharing, um, you know, how this person still creates a lot of QAQC issues. And he's like, you know, I, I don't, I worry about QAQC. I, I don't even pay attention to, you know, costs or schedule. And I'm like, that's because of your incentives. That's right. There's so, no reason for you to. Exactly. Both of yeah. these individuals, um, hierarchically speaking, are about parallel. The project needs both of them. All right. If we quickly deliver crap or slowly deliver a Ferrari, the owner's not happy in either situation. Yeah. You've got to find that overlap in the Venn diagram between delivery time, cost, and quality. But it, it just became blindingly apparent at that moment. I'm like, okay, the superintendent is incentivized by cost and schedule. Yeah. QAQC person incentivized by QAQC. These two need to work together, but their incentive structures has them opposing each other. Yeah. And to expect them to work together, that to me is not a failure on their part. That is a failure on the people that designed the system. There's the, the irrational part. And you know, in the beginning, when you first talked about, and you used, you used the word, you used the modifier, if we act rationally. And I thought immediately of Dan Ariely, right? Predictably irrational, mm. as I described human beings, right? And even, even in that work, it's, the, it's just how our minds operate. Like when you get put in a system, you very quickly... I mean, this is our whole childhood. We're geared in to just pick up what environment we're in and adapt to it. People very quickly adapt and then they can only act as the system allows them to without, I mean, with some exceptions, you'll have some outliers. It's fascinating. Your friend couldn't do anything different. And then, the, you know, your one friend to say, I don't care about cost and schedule. And whereas the QAQC people, totally different environment. I've even worked with teams, Josh, that are in QAQC. And I said, uh, what's a measure of success? And we've explored the topic and come to find that uh, a good measure of success for them, it's not obvious, is past inspection rates on the first attempt, right? And that's a good quality metric. Yeah. Like if you're doing, you know, a thousand inspections a month and you're passing 99% of them, that's really good, right? If they're all equally sized, right? I mean, there's some assumptions in there. But if you're failing half of your inspections, that's automatically means you're doing rework. You got people coming back to areas. You're having to, to mobilize people away from the what's deemed to be critical for the job to finish. You're pulling people away from those activities. You're slowing down the whole job. So you can almost look at that quality inspection rate as a predictor of job speed in of itself. But anyways, going back to your friend. Well, and so, I I think there's one other um, piece worth unpacking a little bit here. In the economic sense, incentives, it's kind of like acceleration in physics. Acceleration does not mean moving faster, it just means the, a rate of change in momentum. In economics, incentives is the same thing. It does not necessarily mean good. So now we need to consider um, what would be considered negative incentives or undesirable incentives. And there, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. In fact, what Kahneman and Tversky have showed us with prospect theory is it's actually closer to a one-to-two, mm -hmm. uh, or sorry, two-to-one. You need double the positive incentive to offset one unit of a negative incentive. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I've not heard that before, but it makes total sense. If I lose a hundred dollars in a bed or it falls out of my wallet, my day is more negatively impacted emotionally oh, 
than if I found a hundred dollars in my wallet. I find a hundred bucks, yeah. woo, woo. But if yeah, I you're over it like in five minutes. But losing a hundred bucks, you're gonna carry that until the time you go to bed. You'll be thinking about that before you close your eyes. Economics even hits this some um, in um, future discounts where you're we're not as swayed as much from the potential of earning tomorrow as much as we are from the potential of loss today. So saying to someone like, oh, you might lose your bonus or you're going to lose a portion of your bonus, that doesn't have the same impact as negatively berating someone, you know, like here, we use the terminology we've all heard, all heard, laying into them, um, you know, just reaming them, bulldozing them, just whatever it is, just yeah. basically um, ripping someone apart. Yeah, getting on somebody's case. You got it. Kicking somebody when they're down. Yep, at least week by week basis a lot of times, if not day by day or on tough projects a, a multiple times a day. So you would need double the incentive of that. And that's a lot of psychological stress while you're also worked long hours, potentially even sleep deprived. Oh, that guaranteed. The behavior we see not only does it make sense, but it actually goes as far as to think, okay, one, if we take the, uh, our intimate knowledge of the construction space out and we just heard about a human being that, hey, they could have made 2X, but instead they just went for X, we'd be like, well, that was dumb. So <laughs> then when you- Yeah, without any context, we automatically think that was stupid. Exactly, but then- you're thinking like you should go for the maximum. But then when we watch someone do it, we're like, oh, that manipulative jerk. They're gaming the system. Yeah. Oh, they're operating, they're operating rationally. We would label them as dumb if they acted any other way. So safety. What a lot of people are doing, a lot of projects, they're trying, they're attaching some sort of payout incentive to safety. And basically saying, okay, the fewer incidents you have the higher your payout is, or your payout could be a max of X. And the thinking is, okay, well, we're incentivizing for better safety. <laughs> the converse of that, the perverse incentive, what you're actually doing is incentivizing for not reporting. That's right. That's absolutely right. And we see that time and time again. The pressure to underreport and not report and to make things first aid that should be going to the emergency room it's unbelievable it's deafening the pressure is it's it's unbearable i my my heart goes out to the safety professionals that have to operate with those types of incentives in play because you still if you look back and look at fatalities right because that's like the worst case someone dies those numbers don't go down and then you look at and then people are like how did it happen because they're looking at these trends and the, the trends and they're saying like there's there are less first aids now right on, on a given job or for a construction company but all the but they still keep having these fatalities like every other year like clockwork so you or, mean or, or, the quality or, rate has stayed consistent right while the potential leading indicator first aid has decreased yeah i've even heard some safety professionals say i don't want to see a single report I walk into a trailer or a job box for a particular trade and they just look at first aid supplies. And if they see that the Band-Aid package looks like totally beat up to or empty or Tylenol missing, that's another thing that like any kind of headache medicine, you can tell a team is overworked when the Tylenol and the aspirin start to be used from the medicine cabinets. Some, some teams will buy those types of things and put in the first aid. And that's, an in, that's a leading indicator that that team is under substantial stress when people are having to medicate at work for headaches or when you see Band-Aids being used or medical tape gone or eye wash stations or even fire extinguishers being used in the site and, not report, and no fire reported. Those are all indicators of like, you can't report. You absolutely cannot like, it's an, and it's an unspoken rule, Josh. The people operating those systems, they know 
Like, I can't say a thing. That is a very, very dangerous topic for I think a lot of people are put in a bad situation. And it's the people that set those up had good intentions when they set it up, but they didn't think about those second order, third order. And most human beings, like, until you get outside of, like, professional chess players, very few human beings are thinking third, fourth, fifth order. Even with chess players, it's worth noting that they themselves – it's not like they're predicting the future. They've just run through moves so many times that they're like, in this configuration, this is the only, there's only a small set of options here. So it would look like this. If we're operating in a space where we don't have that benefit of having run through it a couple different times, I think this is what creates a good argument for um, more nimble experiments. Like each time policy is set, I, I'm hypothesizing here, so please let me know if you have a different perspective on it. Um, setting policy is typically an emotionally and cognitively exhaustive thing for many people because they are trying to essentially predict an unknown future. And if that's the case, I'm a big fan. You see this in the way I model and the way I I go about a lot of my work in the data science space. Make sure that anything I roll out is not going to make the situation any worse. But once it's crossed that threshold, put it out so I can get feedback because I'm going to learn things I did not know before that I could not have possibly speculated my way to. So it's less emotionally exhausting, but what it does require from me is instead of putting it out and being like, oh, I'm done. Instead, I put it out fully ready for it to come back. And I'm like, okay, got it. I've got the next piece, let's tweak. Yeah. And it, it's a much more nimble approach as opposed to treating policy as closer to static. Um, There's also you- that, uh, that disconnection between, like you, you mentioned it on profit. And I think a lot of people don't realize this unless they've spent a lot of time you know, what can you do? What are the levers to, to improve my profit? Some people just set profit goals blindly. Like they'll say like, we should, we should bring back 10%, right? And I'm not speaking as a GC because no GC brings back 10%, just by the way, for, for all of those listening. <laughs> but like, yeah, like let's, let's bring back 10%. And they just fixate on that 10% number and they start making sacrifices on other things instead of thinking like, does my team have the right tools to do this job? Are we starting at the right time so we can be productive? Yeah. Those are the right questions to ask. And if you, if you can answer yes to both of those, you'll sail past your 10% forecast. You know, it's the same way we take care of our family, right? So you think about as a member of a family, you don't want anyone to be intentionally harmed, right? So that's, that's where I think the answer to the safety problem is. It's not in reporting a zero, zero incidents. It's not the reporting. When you focus on the right things, it's obvious what the actions are. It's extremely obvious. But if you're focused on the reporting or the dashboard or making something appear to look good, then you're focused on the wrong thing and you're, you're going to act accordingly. And it's not by bad intention. Like the people that say like our goal is zero, they want no one to be hurt. But sometimes what gets communicated is don't report anything. Yeah. Right. And especially if there's a monetary incentive, this is where, a lot of people haven't, and I'm not going to do Dan Pink any justice. He's done amazing work in talking about incentives and what in cash incentives in particular, monetary incentives are good for simple things. And he showed in experiments, like when, as soon as you make something, you give somebody a problem that's complex and you put a cash incentive on it, their brain turns off and they can't think clearly. But when you, when you give somebody a problem and don't give them a cash incentive, their creativity just flows. I look at the same thing like in, in lean projects, you know, where the owner says, I want to see last planner system pool planning, and I'm going to give you guys, I'm going to give you money to hit a certain PPC, plan percent complete. Inevitably, it gets gamed. It gets gamed rather than I want my project yesterday. All the owner needs to tell you is that I wanted my project yesterday. And then leave it to the, let the creativity flow to the people that are designing the sequence and the work quality will increase. And 
everybody gets happier and the owner gets their building yesterday like they wanted it or as close to yesterday as possible rather than trying to pull these levers we're just pulling levers in the dark and don't understand how the machine works and like you said the bedrock of all of this is human psychology yeah you know the evolutionary biologist that i follow he was talking about um, the importance of systems being dynamic instead of static because he explained that no matter how well a system is designed very much to your point about as soon as you tie an incentive to PPC, give it enough time in that static state, it will figure out how to be gamed. Yeah. But if it is, if the target is continuously moving, and this is one I'm not proposing it so much as a solution, as much as a first stepping stone for potentially more uh, creative and uh, sound ideas. The idea of keeping it moving so that way it can't be figured out too uh, too easily or too quickly how to game that and then move it again. Um, like, oh, okay, our, our focus has actually shifted. I feel like that addresses the static piece of it so you don't get people figuring out how to brilliantly game. Because I have seen incentive structures not gamed, but brilliantly gamed. It's like yeah. if you would have applied 25% of that creativity to the, how you gamed the incentive structure just to your work, you wouldn't have to game the incentive structure. <laughs> well, maybe the work is so boring that they have to game stuff to stay interested because that can happen too. Yeah. Um, There's, and, and that's another thing too. Human intelligence is not fixed. It's also dynamic. It changes. Yeah. And, and your interest in something actually makes your intelligence increase. Or your stress levels cause it to decrease. Yes. I'm um, regurgitating this secondhand. So I have not read the paper that talks about this. Um, but I remember hearing Andrew Yang talk about the impact of, he read a study that showed the stress of not paying just one of your bills on an IQ test, people were a standard deviation below the mean wow. just by being stressed about paying a bill. So if you're at the mean, which I think right now in what, 2020, somewhere around 105, give yeah, or take. I think that's where we are. I know it was set at a baseline 100 right now to about 105. Uh, standard deviation roughly still being about 15 points. So that would take you from 105 IQ to 90 IQ just by that stress alone. What is one thing that is consistent on every construction project you've <laughs> ever been on? A high level of stress. An absurd amount of level of stress. I don't know that people were that stressed on the Titanic. It was clearly thinking. Yeah, on the Titanic, they still played, the band played on, right? <laughs> People calmly walked to the lack of boats. There weren't enough boats. <laughs> okay, that was meant to just be, you know, more comical. But wow, that that worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on, on, I remember being on a job this year, a construction project, and we were looking. We were walking around with some of the supervisors, and some of the the craft people started like running around. Cause they didn't know who we were and it was not a well-communicated visit. I told the, one of the foremen, I said, could you let your people know that we're not judging them right now? We're looking at how we've set the stuff, like how you foreman have set this up for them to work, take the pressure off of them and tell them like, do not run around. Like the site was pretty rocky and the chances of trip and fall due to running around was like exponentially higher but the people felt the pressure of us just looking because we were just standing there for like two hours. And that in of itself, you probably have never seen on a construction project, somebody just standing still for two hours straight, looking and trying to understand how things are working and what's not working. And they did, they calmed down, but it had to be explained. That's, an, that's another phenomenon, Josh. It's the Hawthorne effect. Yep. Just looking at a system influences how it behaves and people are no exception. Did I, I answer, did I answer your unanswerable question? 
Was it the safety thing? Was your your question? It was. Um, I thought what you talked about with measuring the supplies definitely a good start. Um, I, I could still see how that could. Yeah, I mean the the consensus from the safety professionals that I've talked to, Josh, is don't trust the reports. Yeah. Everybody, I mean, it's like, and like everyone, like you said, they're not bad people. We don't hire liars in construction. We don't. They're honest, good people, and you get to know them. They are just like we are. Like, they respond to incentives and pressure. Yeah. So you got to, that's one of the, the tenets that we try to teach people that are adopting any type of improvement of a system is don't do it from a, a boardroom. Don't do it from a conference room. Don't do it from the trailer go out and see it happening, spend the time right as close to it as you can immerse yourself in it and then figure it out. You'll see what it is like overall construction today is way safer than it was even just in the 1970s, you know, when, with OSHA coming into play and that OSHA coming into play being legislated. I'm not a fan of legislation by the way, to make people behave better, but that's when we really started tracking construction fatalities to a higher level because it was getting obscene. Yeah. I mean, now like our, the, the rates are way lower. The fatalities are lower. Like, you know, a lot of people look at the empire state building as this grand thing from an insurance company perspective, they had factored in a fatality per floor, acceptable loss of human life, at least one point. And I think it was one point, something almost closer to two people per floor was acceptable human loss. Whereas today we're like, no one should die. Yeah. Like that's pretty common. Like you go, I've never been on a job in my 20 years of the business and people were under the assumption that it's okay for some people to die. That's not been the case. So that's a different mental mindset shift from two generations ago where, where fatalities were acceptable. I think there's some benefit to acknowledging the progress that has been made before working harder and harder to get to zero because it gets harder and harder to oh, yeah. get to zero. And if you just, because of that amnesia that we are all born with, if you just start immediately putting that pressure of, you know, hey, going from, you know, five to three, three to two, two to one, um, it, it can be a, an overwhelming task. Um, and I also wonder some of it, I don't at all expect us to get to a solution, but even if we end up at a countermeasure where someone listening, you know, reaches out to you and like, hey, after that conversation, we tried this, like, just try it. It could fail dismally. That's part of experimenting. Yeah. You're not experimenting if everything has to work right. But, um, you know, we don't, and this is just my, my experience here. So um, this may not generalize well. It's not talked about one, like how much better things have gotten first. That's good. And I think the concern at times could be like that fostering a sense of complacency. It's my experience and actually is more empowering and emboldening. It's like, hey, we've gotten this far. We can get a little further. Well, that's where you're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. Like the people that came before us to make the industry, to say, to stand up and say, a fatality per project is unacceptable, right? That's a huge first step that we just take for granted today. Yeah. Like you and I just take it for granted. We're so young that we, we have not had to go to a lot of funerals for construction people. We haven't because there aren't a lot of construction people. There still are. Now there are other things happening. Like there's a large number of suicides in construction. So it's not all better. Whereas in the past, there weren't so many suicides. Do you know what that trend line looks like for them? I've heard, I hear, I've heard of the, just the last two years. I've not read anything directly, but from people that have looked at it, they said it's increasing over the last couple of years. But to go back to the, the safety part. Yeah. What's the first thing we can do is like, yeah, I think we should acknowledge, you know, how do we get here? What, what safety measures have we put in place? Like, you know, even just looking at the tools that we have now, the tools that have like an angle grinder, something so simple as that. They all come standard with guards. Like yeah. today, every manufacturer that sells an angle grinder has a guard on its standard. 
standard. I remember when I first got into the business in uh, when I was in my 20s, so I'm dating myself, that was 20 years ago. You could buy angle grinders that didn't even have a, a guard. They were still readily available. Like, in fact, getting a putting a wing one with a guard was the oddball, right? And I know you can still buy them today and they have removable guards because sometimes you have to take the guard off in order to get into certain places, but you have to actually take it off. It yeah. comes like out of the box with it on. I can speak to it some in construction because I've spent plenty of time there. But sure. even as I play in a number of other industries and domains, you see this disturbing attempt to decouple cause and effect. Like I can behave irrationally, but I don't have to pay the consequences of it. And it's like, that's terrible because you can only do that so far before eventually reality finds its way back in. And the longer you go without reality, reminding you how to operate within it, that, that smack is even harder. What's that they say? There's no such thing as a free lunch, Josh. Yeah. Everything you do has a an effect. Even not acting has an effect. Oh, absolutely. No, this is great, man. This is a great conversation. I think we, we hit on some, I never would have imagined we were going to talk about safety when we were talking about economics. <laughs> that was a, a nice twist. Thank you for, uh, for spending the time with me and I think we can call it a show. That sounds great. It's been a pleasure, Felipe. Yeah, man. Have a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again soon. Excellent. Take care. Thanks for listening to the EBFC podcast. Let's go build.